Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I am your host, Anna Garcia, and we are recording this episode on January 20th, 2021. Our guest today is former prosecutor Lonnie Coombs, a friend of the program. Lonnie, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Oh, we're so happy you're here. We have two cases that are very controversial, both in um, the details of the case one being a a serial rapist and the other one being very controversial um, because of a murder-suicide between a parent and child. Horrendous, horrendous cases. So let's, oh, and another headline. This year, this episode, right now, I am celebrating my one-year anniversary with True Crime Daily, the podcast. Congratulations. (laughs) Huge accomplishment. That was a difficult year. Yes, yeah. we started in the studio and then we moved to my home. First the kitchen and, and now the family room. Um, it's Yes, it's been quite a challenge for the entire staff, for everybody who, the team that works on this. So I'm very happy to be um, honoring that. Great today. job. Great Thank job. you. And so glad that you're a part of our crime family. <laughs> You've always been there. We love you as a resource. So let's get to our cases. Okay. This week, a California father has allegedly killed his son, and then he turned the gun on himself after a dispute with the child's mother over what she said in court documents was his cult-like anti-vaccine views. And an alleged serial rapist who targeted black sororities for a decade has finally been arrested. So let's begin with this huge break in the case in Texas. So last week on Monday, January 11th, detectives from the Plano Police Department, in cooperation with the Arkansas State Police, arrested 48-year-old Jeffrey Wheat on a charge of rape. He is believed to be the man who police named the sorority rapist. This is a crazy creepy case of stalking and and really targeting your victims and we and we still don't know the exact connection yet Lonnie that's what's curious here so he he was apprehended in Arkansas which is not where he lives and this is for a 2011 sexual assault case back in Texas and it was DNA found at the crime scene and the use of social media that led police to Jeffrey Wheat Let's go to the backstory. Let's get to the details of the case. 2011, 
Delta Sigma Theta warned their sorority members, not just the current ones, but also all of those who had graduated already, to be on high alert because there was a series of sexual assaults all against women who had attended and been a member of this sorority. They were reported in the Dallas area, and it's really interesting, Lonnie, that, again, the connection with the victims is they had been sorority sisters. Yeah. I mean, if you talk about a, a serial rapist choosing a group of people to target, this is so specific and so unique. Think of the planning that had to go into finding victims because they had to be members of this sorority. The victims were older. They were in their 50s and 60s. So they weren't current members. Somehow he had to find out that they had been members, whether they were still active or not. Um, They all lived in the Texas area and he knew all of their names. So very clear that there was uh, research done, planning, and then stalking involved to be able to locate them, find them, and then attack them in their homes. And the victim said that he made it clear that he knew who they were by using their names, but they all said the same thing. They had no idea who he was. There was nothing about him that they could recollect that they had ever seen, met, anything like that. Right. He was a total stranger to them. So So, his stalking, his preparation was done at a distance, but done very carefully and in a sophisticated way that they never found out who he was. And police have still not told us what that connection is. What was the obsession with this group of sorority sisters who were in their 50s? What was it? You know, and all we know now is his name and his age, which he's 48 now. When this started occurring in 2011, he was probably about 20... In his 20s. In his 20s. And the very first one that they've linked to him, which is in 2003, he was about 20. So that puts him at the age of college age, potentially. So did he have something to do with that sorority during his college, but then decided to attack members of that sorority who are in their 50s and 60s? I mean, there's so many different things you're trying to pick together as to what his motive would be to pick on these women as his target. It is. And, you know, I and I think you could certainly explain this to us much better than I ever could. The 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 act of a rape, a sexual rape, um, a, a, of a sexual violent uh, crime is what I'm trying to say. It's mm-hmm. truly a crime of violence. It Absolutely. is. Right. It, it, yeah. it is. There's something that he hates here. Right. It, it has nothing to do with sex. Uh, the sexual it has something to do that's going on in his psyche that he is somehow controlling um, the, the situation. And we know from the one victim who talked about uh, what happened, we have her records, her reports, that she said she woke up, he was in her room covering his her mouth. Um, she was able to bite him and that his hand bled on the pillow, which was very important, but that she decided to try and talk to him during the actual rape. And so she did uh, to try and calm him down and to get him to stop. And he talked a lot about himself. He talked about, he said he was in his 40s, which actually was a lie. Um, he said that he was married without children. So he's talking this whole time to her. Um, she's learning information about him. And then later, we know, a couple of days later, he calls to apologize to her. So these are all little tidbits to put into what was his psyche and his motive into why he was doing this. What was the psychological side 
of this for him. It's, it's unbelievable. He called her cell phone to apologize. And of course, police then were able to track that call to a payphone outside of um, a mini mart gas station. And then they use the surveillance video at the exact same time of a man there to connect. They, so they had an idea of who it was, but they still didn't know who. And we're going to get into how they managed to connect yeah. back to that man. And again, it was through DNA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Both DNA left at the scene, DNA that then started to match other cases that were creeping up, and then DNA that they managed to do that whole genealogical search, Very important. Right? Yeah, and I want to talk about that. That's so important. But you're right. The police did a great job in this case because they collected DNA from this first uh, rape. They got the surveillance video. So they're just adding to the evidence they can use. They still have no idea who it is. And then they start reading these similar rape reports. And so they start gathering the DNA from those cases and comparing them. So they keep adding to the information of who this person is. They don't know who it is, but they're able to link the specific rapes together saying this is all the same person. It's the person same that's on this video. Yeah. And all the victims now have a common common thread. All of them are former sorority sisters right. of right. the same age. So slowly everything starts coming together and that's how they knew that they had a serial rapist on their hands. And at this point, once the sorority realizes, because, of course, the police go back to the sorority trying to figure out, OK, what else do we know? Do you, have you, you know, have your members been complaining about anybody stalking them or reaching out to them? Anything that could have been red flags leading up to other women being assaulted. And that's when the sorority said to all of the current and former sisters, absolutely no longer identify yourself as a member of this sorority. If you have a sticker, a bumper sticker, a t-shirt, don't wear it. Take it off. Take that bumper sticker off your car. You have a keychain. You know, whatever it is that identifies you as a member of this sorority, please, please don't make yourself a target. In case, you know, he was triggered by the sight of an emblem, for example, although I think it was far more targeted than no, that, right? it was much more than that. I mean, I could see him, you know, trolling around looking, and then he starts to you know, do the information and the research about that specific person. Because uh, we don't know how he found out the membership, right? Did he get membership roles? Or was he just looking for people who were wearing those symbols or maybe going to meetings and he was watching outside? We have no idea at this point. And it is interesting when they look at all the other cases, and we're going to give you the headlines from all of the cases, that they weren't all in the same area. They were well, in Texas. Right. So it's not like he went to a central location as close to, let's say, the sorority house as possible and then kind of followed women from there. No, 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 no. It was far more tactical. It was mm -hmm. something that was far more planned. And this really talks about his obsession to be able to plan this and to do it over a period of time. That's why I really can't wait till we get some more court records that will reveal what was going on, what was in his head, why, how did he select these women? And also the police have said that they believe many more women were raped but did not come forward to police. And they're hoping that they may decide to come forward because that may make for a stronger case. But as we know, this is an underreported crime. Right. And I think that's why it's really important that we're highlighting this today, because these uh, cases that we're talking about happened in 2011 and 2003. 
So time has passed and we don't know what he's been doing during that time or what was going on between 2003 and 2011. So people need to know, these women need to know if something happened to them, you know, they may be a part of this bigger picture and will feel safe coming forward now. It's, oh my goodness, you know, that happened to me. I wasn't the only one. I, it, there, it was a number of these women that were targeted. And he's so. charged with just this one attack in Plano, even though there is DNA evidence that links other sexual assaults to the same perpetrator, the the police departments in those cases have not charged him yet. But my guess is those charges are coming. Right. Remember, he's, he's just been arrested. So usually what happens is, you know, one department will, when you have multiple jurisdictions, because these will be, even though they're on Texas, they're different jurisdictions. Um, one will kind of do the work to get the person arrested. And now they are talking to the other law enforcement agencies and deciding how are we going to put this all together? You know, there's a question of, do you put them all in the same place or does he go from one place to another to be tried? You know, when do you file your charges? Um, so that's all being determined. Those are kind of the nitty gritty of how to prosecute a case against someone. So I'm, I'm just going to show you the thread that's kind of um, like with date stamps that I think helps people to follow this case. So we've established that in April of 2011, that a woman was sexually assaulted in her house because of that bite mark, because she fought back and she bit him, there was blood left on the pillow. So there was evidence at the crime scene, which police gathered several days after she was raped. She gets that phone call right to her cell phone. The guy's apologizing. They manage to trace that call to a Chevron food mart. So now the cases start coming in. And what's interesting is that video, um, Lonnie, the video that they got from the food mart, the surveillance video, they showed it to the victim. And they said, does this look like the man who attacked you? And she said, yes. But at this point in 2011, they don't know who he is, right? Right. We know we have his DNA. We have video of the man, but they don't know who he is, and he is not recognized by the victim. Months later, months later, they get a report of a similar assault. So here's what's interesting. This is now September 2011. There has been now another assault, same MO. They check the DNA, and it matches. Mm -hmm. But so, a, di a different county. A different so, county, right. a totally different police department. Exactly. Right. And, and Koppel, that's why I, Koppel police. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that's why I give this police um, department in Plano credit because they're, they're looking, they're looking for similarities. They're looking for patterns. They didn't just take this one rape case and say, oh, well, you know, we, we have DNA and we have a video, but we don't know who it is. So we're just going to put it to the side. They kept their eyes and ears and antenna open. And they said, hey, here's another rape case. That sounds similar. That the 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 way the rape went down was similar. He talked to her. He um, you know, knew her name. And then they looked at the victim and said, Oh my goodness, the victims have similarities. So now let's look at this. Let's get the oh, there's DNA. Let's compare the DNA to the DNA we have in this case. So they're building on that case actively. They didn't just throw it aside. And I really that's the way law enforcement should work cases. I, I'm very complimentary of, of these uh, law enforcement agencies here. And the attacker was really on a spree at this point because we had, that we know of, remember, there are a lot we probably don't know of, but we know of April 2011, we know of September 2011, and then October 2011, the Corinth Police Department reports yet another sexual assault. This is now 
the third in a third jurisdiction. So they match all the DNA and then they manage to match the DNA going back to 2003, as you said. And that's very important because that now tells you that if he, and do you find that when you have either serial killers or serial rapists, do they attack in, 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 as I would say, spurts? Are they consistent? I mean, if they slow down or they stop, it's usually because something's happened in their life. It's not because right. they've gained self-control. No, and it's usually abrupt, like they think they're going to get caught. But there is usually a pattern. It usually, they usually start out slow, right, because they're learning. They're um, figuring out how to do it. And the first time they do it, they're nervous they're going to get caught, so they wait a while. And then they start doing it more and more. And now they're getting obsessed with it. They're getting, you know, that they're fixed from it. And so it will start to escalate. They'll start to, you know, do it more often and more often because now they're more confident about it. And sometimes there is, a, you know, sort of a pattern, a specific reason for their pattern. Like they're picking anniversary dates that are important to them. Or they do it on the holidays because it's easier to find their victims at that time. Once you, you know, start to see the pattern, you start to say, oh, well, this makes sense because perhaps these are all, you know, college age kids that are on vacation. And that's why it's all during, you know, school vacations. So uh, there's, there's a lot of thinking that goes into the, you know, the serial um, killing or rapist, that their thoughts that are going into planning. There's a lot of planning that goes on it, you know. So now we have to figure out how did they finally get to this break in the case? So we have this serial rapist that is you know, continually raping here. And two months ago, this is when everything started changing. Two months ago in November of 2020, Plano police contacted Wheat's ex-wife. Okay, this is the man who was arrested. Now, why? Because the Plano police department started matching DNA from the crime scenes to DNA that we know is out there in all these websites, right? All these organizations where you just donate your DNA. So there was something, right, that led them to wheat. Okay. So let me, I am such a big proponent of this genealogical DNA matching. Um, and it just started like a year, maybe two years ago. Before that, in law enforcement, this is such a good example. You had four rapes, very serious cases. You had DNA samples from every one of them. And you had a video. And yet they still could not identify who it was. It's like trying to find literally the needle in the haystack. Apparently, I'm sure they put the DNA samples into CODIS and the different database as, and they didn't come up. So he hadn't been arrested before. He didn't have a record. He did not have a sample of his DNA in those databases. And so to try and find this person is literally like, even though you have all this evidence, you would think, oh, we can solve it. If you don't have the databases that have these people's DNA in it, you're still working, looking for the needle in the haystack. But now that we've started using these genealogical databases where people are putting their DNA in, it makes the database for DNA humongous, right? Now we have all these different samples and it doesn't have to be just the specific suspect whose DNA is in there. It can be anybody that they're related to. So right. if they put this, these um, samples in, and somebody pops up, it can be a cousin, it can be a brother, it can be a, you know, somebody that's related to them. Then they take that person, they say, okay, this is a match. It's close to a match. Let's do a family tree. Let's branch out literally, see who they're related to. And if any of these people that pop up 
can somehow be tied to our case. Are they in the same location? Are they about the same age? And so it's a lot of, even though you do the genealogical part, then it's just good old, hard, old-fashioned detective work because you get this list of family members and you have to start doing interviews and social media um, searches and trying to find out who matches this potential suspect. And that's how they came up with Jeffrey Wheat's name because he popped up, a family member popped up and they came up with his name. They said, hey, he looks like he could be good for our suspect. So then you take that suspect and now you do further information to confirm that. You do all of this before you ever do an arrest. So that's the point we're at, we're at now. They, they decide we're going to go talk to his ex-wife and see if we can confirm our suspicions that this is the person. And that's fascinating because what they do is they show the ex-wife the video from the service station, the payphone, right? Mm -hmm. From back in 2011. And she says, oh, yeah, that's my ex-husband. So then they ask the ex-wife, could we DNA test your son? This is the son that she has with her ex-husband, the now strongest potential suspect as the serial rapist here. And they get a DNA sample from the son, who will be among the closest in DNA, right? Mm-hmm. Closest in DNA, which then makes it possible because, as you would know, then police have to then try and get his DNA to confirm. And there are many ways they could do that. They could do that with a with a warrant and very surreptitiously start taking garbage, cigarette butts, mm-hmm. you know, soda cans. And then, of course, they can ask him directly for his. Usually, that's what they do, right? They grab the with a warrant the surreptitious. Well, collected. Yeah, usually, in these cases, they do try to get the surreptitious. Like they they follow him, they surveil him, and then they wait until they discard the suspect. They discard a tissue or they discard a cup. In this case, because they had the son's DNA and it looked like such a close match, I didn't read that they actually waited to try and surveil him and get his DNA. They, I think they just arrested him. And then that point, they can ask him for, you know, they'll get a DNA sample from him. But in this yes. case, I think they use the son's DNA and, and use that. And that is incredible, right? That, that they have now located, because this is all, think about it. This is November, just a few months ago. All yeah. of a sudden, this case from 2011 has fire and it's, it's moving so quickly. So in December is when they got the DNA sample from the son. November, they talk to the ex-wife. December, they get the son's DNA. And then they go ahead and they finally arrest the guy. So I I am, I mean, I I think a weight has been lifted for all of these sorority sisters. Think about it because this whole time, they all for decades, right, have been living with this fear that they are a target at any given time. And God forbid someone finds out that they were a member of this sorority. Yeah. That if they just say it to the wrong person. That's right. Because he's out there. They had no idea who he was. They had no idea where he was. And I think it would be fascinating because I hear this over and over again from law enforcement to ask them, was this guy ever on your radar before you did the genealogical search? Would he have ever popped up on your radar? but for being able to use the genealogical databases. Um, So he really was this enigma that was out there, a a threat to all of these women until he was finally caught. Finally. So Jeffrey Wheat was arrested in Arkansas on Monday, taken to Plano, Texas, where he is being held on a $500,000 bond. 
It's unclear why he was in Arkansas, because apparently he lives in North Carolina, which, of course, Mm. now we all know police in that area will probably be going through any of their unsolved sexual assault cases to see if there are any similarities. Also, my guess is that through the sorority that they will be putting out, you know, emails of information about him, about where we know that he struck and anything that you may know. So there may be a much bigger case. And it's also, you know, what is not clear is have there been any recent cases of assaults linked to him? We haven't heard any of those. That doesn't mean there aren't any, you know. Right. And, and we know he moved from Texas. When did he move from Texas? So there could be these clusters in other states we just don't know about. Yeah. I, 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 and I also want to give credit here, of course, the incredible police work that was done. But even the police department themselves said that it was because of the hard work of a detective and an administrative assistant yep. who pitched in to do a lot of the legwork. And and that's that's important because when we think of police departments, we only think of the sworn officers, but mm-hmm. we don't always think of the support staff that work with them, around them, all of the time you know, top to bottom. These are the people who are dealing, you know, with crime victims and criminals. And and so um, I love that they gave a shout out to the administrative assistant and said, yes, thank you very much for your hard work. Yeah, that was very nice. So I think we're going to know a lot more about this case in the coming weeks as uh, court records become available. But man, it's nice to know that this guy's been taken off the streets. Lonnie, our second case is out of San Francisco, California, where a father allegedly shot his son and then turned the gun on himself. And this apparently happened after getting into an argument with the child's mother over vaccines. According to court records pertaining to the custody battle between the parents over this child, there were many arguments over whether to vaccine, whether to vaccinate or to not. Now, we are not going to debate vaccines on this program. We are not a medical show. We're not a political show. We are a crime show. And any references and quotes that we make to vaccines are coming directly from documents that were filed as part of this custody battle. So these statements are going to give us insight into what each parent was thinking and feeling at the time that may give us some information as to why an innocent child, a nine-year-old boy, was murdered. And sadly, we see in a lot of these custody battles that they end so violently. It's as if, no, I'm taking the child. No, I'm taking the child. And really, at the end of the day, Lonnie, is it not a battle over control and possession that that's really what it comes down to, screwing the other parent? Yeah. You know, um, obviously, I was a criminal prosecutor, so we dealt with crimes and stuff. But we always talked about how some of the worst violence that happened was from the family law courts, because this is where families are going through divorces and custody hearings. And people who just assume that your whole life, you get to be in control of your home, your intimate life, your children how you're going to raise your children. Once you go through a divorce, that now brings in the courts 
to dictate that. If the parents can't agree on this, and I, t- I always counsel parents who are going through a divorce, if you can't agree together, a third party, a judge is going to come in and make those decisions for you. And neither side may be happy, but there's clearly going to be one side that's definitely not happy. And because the emotions are so high and because people want to be have control over their families, um, love their kids and feel very strongly about it, sometimes the anger and the emotions can get so high. And then when we're talking about ex-spouses and there's fighting between spouses, um, many times it's like, if I'm not the one in control here, I'm not going to let you be in control. And that's how you end up to deadly violence. Horrible. If I can't have the child, neither will you. So instead, what's the solution? Kill the child? It's, It's such a violent, violent end to what sounds like, based on court records, years of fighting between these two. And one can only imagine the damage that was done to this little boy because of what was going on between the parents. So let's get into the details of the case as we know them from the court records. On January 13th, the bodies of Stephen O'Loughlin, 49 years old, and his nine-year-old son, Pierce O'Loughlin, were found by police. Police were called to the apartment in San Francisco because the little boy had not shown up for school. So the mother made a welfare call to police, said, please go to the father's apartment, um, check on my son. And that is when police found a murder-suicide crime scene. It appears that the father shot the son, killed him, and then turned the gun on himself. Lonnie, this is what I don't get. You know, if you are angry, despondent, if you want to commit this incredibly violent act, why kill the child? I'm not advocating kill yourself, but my God, why the child? The child is the innocent one here. Right. You know, when we see this between the spouses, when one ex-spouse kills the other spouse, it's because... You know, they're getting away from me. They're losing control. You know, if I can't have this person, no one else can. In, in the parents, it's a little bit more layered than that. It's similar to that, but it's also, I believe I know what's best for this child. And if that doesn't happen because somebody else, you know, intervenes, the courts come in, uh, the law takes over. I, sometimes, this is the mentality. I love them so much. I love this child so much that I don't want that horrible thing, whatever it is going to be, happen to them. So it's better. I'm saving them. This is what you hear. And I'm, just, I'm saving them from this horrible thing. So I'm going to take them out. And then, and then they are taking themselves. Clearly, you know, something is, is snapped or there's mental illness or something. That it's obviously not ordered thinking that's going on. No. Um, but, no. but it's the same thing of that control of I'm not going to let something else happen to my child that I don't agree with. This is my child. I will be the one that determines. And if that means I have to take them off this earth, that's what they're going to do. This is by no means any form of rational thinking. Absolutely no. not. And and while we're trying to figure out if there was an inciting incident, it appears that this case was scheduled for trial this week. And then there was a postpone, postponement until March. We don't know if that is the thing that just triggered it. It's like, I can't. I won't. We don't know, but that's the only thing we can see in the in the records. Was well, uh, yeah, and I agree with you. I think that's really important to look at because when you find out that this divorce happened in 2016, 
So it's been years of this couple fighting over how they're going to raise their child. Um, and it's gone back and forth the entire time. They'd had joint custody, but now the mother was trying to get sole custody because she wanted to be able to make these decisions over his medical care without the father intervening. And the day before the murder-suicide, they were due in court. It was actually supposed to be the trial date. Right. But what happened in court was they postponed the trial until March, and they got a concession from the father. He said he agreed okay, my son can be vaccinated. That was the first time he's ever conceded to that. It was this big fight that had been going on. Oh, my son's going to be able to be vaccinated. So you figure after that, he goes home that night. He's with his son. He's thinking, this thing that I have fought against for so long because I so strongly believe that it is dangerous to my son's health is now going to be forced on my son. And not only that, but in a few months, I have to go to court and maybe lose custody over my son. This is just too much. And then the next day, he takes this horrific action. It's as if he saw no other way but this, that he had lost it all or was potentially about to lose it all. It, it's shocking. It's shocking. So he was in this custody battle with his ex-wife, the mother of Pierce, Leslie Who. The custody dispute, as you said, had been going on since the 2016 divorce, the mother did want that sole custody, sole legal guardianship of Pierce. And, you know, when you make these arguments before a court, because obviously you can't decide, so you are arguing before a judge saying, no judge, I'm right. No judge, I'm right. This is what I want. You start um, putting a lot of details, sometimes your family's dirty laundry, some oh, yeah. of it truthful, some of it is manufactured, as we know. Uh, things get very, very nasty in divorces and custody battles. So according to court records, the father's position on vaccines led to several disputes between the couple. The mother claimed that the father was paranoid and obsessed with the son's overall health, that he was hypersensitive to everything having to do with his son's health. The father argued this is the father's position, that Pierce had severe side effects from getting vaccinated as a baby that included weight loss and diarrhea. So from the father's perspective, he was afraid of what would happen to his son if he were to be further vaccinated. Mm -hmm. That's the father's perspective. The mother said that she wanted sole custody so she could vaccinate the child without any interference from the father. So it appears that while really what they're fighting about is control and the child, the two of them decided to make it about whether to vaccinate or not. That is the issue which they chose to dispute in the court. Right, right. So, and again, we're pulling from the court records here. And it's interesting because it's all of the things that you've said in the past, that you've done in the past, that will tell the story of what was going on. And the court records provide us with a narrative of what was going on between these two. So I'm going to quote now from the father's attorney, this again, coming from the records, quote, this is not an anti-vax parent seeking to prevent his child from being vaccinated for the average child. The risk to benefit ratio for vaccines is in favor of vaccinations. 
for a certain subset of society, however, this is not the case. Pierce is one of those people. So that is the argument that the father's side was making in court. The mother fires back, and in September, in a court filing in September, this is what she said in court records, quote, that his stance on vaccinations has taken on a cult-like tone. So she starts attacking the father's mental health. And given that he just, this week, murdered his son and turned the gun on himself, I think there is some reasonable question about his mental stability. Mm -hmm. How any of this factors into it is to be determined. So the mother says that the, that the father was obsessed with the boy, that he was, quote, videotaping Pierce's breathing several times a day in case he had any ailments, like if there was a stuffy nose. So here's a dad who appears to be, based on these records, very, very fearful mm-hmm. of his son's health. So I, I think that there was a real fear. And what is unclear is whether the child was healthy or not and had health issues. Again, to be determined as part of this investigation. The mother claims that from 2012 to 2016, that Stephen O'Loughlin paid thousands of dollars to a, quote, new age self-help group that believed the government was using mind control on people. He attended therapy sessions with leaders of this group. The mother is the one who describes this as a cult. The mother also claims that that the father was inherently paranoid, that he suffered from paranoia, and that all these other factors were feeding into that paranoia. So obviously, you know, when, when she makes these accusations, she is the one who's using the terms of cults, mind control. She is trying to paint a picture before the judge, right? That he is mentally unstable. Right. Right. And therefore cannot take care of the child. Yeah. And you see this in, in custody disputes. Um, and it's hard to always know what their the truth is. Like you said, um, you have two very emotional parents fighting for control over their son's health, um, health decisions. And sometimes they're telling the absolute truth. And that's why they are so desperate. And that's why they're in court. And sometimes they're exaggerating it or embellishing it. Uh, We just don't know for sure. But like you said, looking now, 2020 hindsight, after the horrific event of the murder-suicide, you realize how far pushed the father was uh, mentally and emotionally to get to that point. Yes. And so, of course, you know, at the end of the day, two people are dead. There is a nine-year-old boy who is the true, true innocent one in all of this who should not have been murdered. His life should not have been taken from him. He should not have been murdered by his father. I fear for what those last minutes or hours could have been like for the boy because we don't know if he had any idea what his father was about to do. Was the father sharing this mental torment? This right. torment, right? That this, 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 he was tormented. Whether he was sharing that with the child or whether it happened very quickly, did he see the gun coming toward him? I, I don't know. No matter what, 
that is the crime here. That's yeah. the crime here. So obviously, um, there has been a, uh, uh, so much of this is in the public because it was in the court records. We have a statement from the mother's attorney about the murder-suicide. And this was published in the Chronicle in San Francisco. Quote, I think it is undeniable that Pierce's father suffered from untreated mental illness, which resulted in his taking the life of his son and his own life. I believe that he did this horrid act in order to exercise the ultimate control over Leslie. Close quote. That's the mother. It's interesting because I, I was researching them as a couple and, you know, they were both very high powered, um, intelligent, successful individuals in their careers. Um, he was a VP at, at a firm when they got married, their wedding was in the, you know, wedding style magazine. Um, they were involved in a lot of, you know, big charity events there in San Francisco. So you start out with this, you know, beautiful, um, fairy tale wedding and, you know, this romantic story. And then along comes a child and whether it was just their differences in child rearing, or perhaps there was this mental illness or paranoia aspect, but it goes so tragically wrong. And it's just such a sad story, especially for the son who you would think this beautiful baby being born into this, you know, fairy tale existence is going to have this amazing life. And it was just, just the opposite. When you think about it, they had all of the resources that so many families wish that they could to give their yeah. child everything in the world. And at the end of the day, they squandered the last few years fighting and bickering and and just using the child as a human tug of war, pulling in each direction. And ultimately, that child is dead. The father killed him. The father then killed himself. I, it's It's a horrendous tragedy. Horrendous horrendous tragedy. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. A California man lived in the Chicago airport for three months because he said he was too scared to fly home because of COVID. Okay. The man lived inside O'Hare airport for three months. And I find it interesting that no one really like noticed until now. Three it is months. a big, it is a big airport. I mean, yeah. for sure. It is a huge airport. And, you know, with COVID, there aren't as many people at the airport. And for some of it, I'm sure it may be, you know, I, I get three months is a long time, though, right? A long time. Yeah. It's a long, it's a long time. So um, let's get into the details of this one. <laughs> Adita Singh, who's 36 years old, is charged with felony criminal trespass to a restricted area of an airport and misdemeanor theft. Police said that he claimed he was too afraid to fly home to California because of COVID-19. According to the Chicago Tribune, Singh lived at O'Hare, uh, excuse me, arrived at O'Hare from Los Angeles. So home base would have been California. Mm -hmm. um, and he got there on October 19th, <laughs> got to the airport and he left. He never left. He just stayed there and was always in the secure area. Um, I do find it interesting, again, like how People didn't see him regularly, and this is how they finally found him. Prosecutors say that two United Airlines employees asked him for credentials because he was in a secure area, and he allegedly showed them a badge for an operations manager, an operations manager who had reported that their badge was lost. Apparently, <laughs> the person dropped the badge, he found the badge, and that 
then gave him entree to more areas of the airport because after three months, he was probably very bored of the areas he had already been spending time <laughs> in, right? Uh, <laughs> so um, what is interesting is how he survived because, you know, for depending on the time of year uh, during this pandemic, uh, and I recently flew, so and that was very surreal, a lot is not open. Some right. things are open. Some restaurants are open. Some snack shops are. But depending on the airport and the time, they're not. Right. So apparently, um, they found out that a bunch of passengers were just sharing their food with him. <laughs> he looked hungry. <laughs> he looked homeless. <laughs> and they probably thought, uh, if I were sitting in an airport in the secure area, right? I've already gone through TSA, all that stuff. If I'm sitting there... And I see someone who is struggling, right, who who looks like um, they're hungry or they're in a bad way. I am probably going to feel a lot less fearful, right, mm -hmm. because ahead. I'm going to say, well, they got through TSA. The person's been checked. Do you, yeah. do you know what I mean? Yeah. And how many times, too, have we been at an airport and your um, flight gets delayed, delayed, delayed? And like you didn't plant, you didn't bring food, maybe you didn't bring a lot of money. You're like, I'm so hungry. I just remember being in airports being hungry. And, you know, he might have told people that just said, you know, I've been stuck here. My flight keeps getting delayed and I don't have any more money. Can you, you know, buy me a candy bar or something? So um, I can see that happening in an airport. Absolutely. And you're right. People feel like, oh, it's a fellow passenger. We have this camaraderie, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, so all of that really does make sense. Um, well, you know, the, I, I don't know what kind of consequences. I mean, he has been charged. We don't know how how severe the consequences are going to be. Some might say living in an airport for months is punishment enough. <laughs> just going to say. Just going to put it out there. Although, didn't you ever, like as a child, um, there was that one book about the kids who snuck into the museum and um, lived there for a while. and you know, there's kind of this fantasy. And then there was that movie, The Terminal with uh, Tom Hanks, where the guy yes. got stuck in the airport for a while. It's kind of like, yes. what would it be like to be stuck here after everybody's gone? You know, where would you sleep? Where would you eat? And so, but he did it for three months. Cool. No, it's not the worst of places, right? It's <laughs> yeah. not the worst of places. All right. So uh, Willie H. writes, I can't say I blame him. Poor guy. I, I feel for him too. Yeah. Letitia G. writes, what a mess. And Charlotte W., Amazing. <laughs> I have to say it the way my son and all his friends in college say, amazing. <laughs> it's not their favorite word. <laughs> our next case in the comments section, we're moving over to Orlando, where a quick-thinking restaurant manager helped to rescue a boy who was being abused. These are the kinds of stories that I love mm. because um, so many times we always ask the question, did no one notice the child with the bruises? Yeah. Did no one notice? Did no one do anything? How could you? This person, this person noticed. This person did something. This person did something so brilliant. Ah, oh, such a heroic moment because when you think of how scary it could have been, especially when we find out what was being done to the child, can it, they don't, this person doesn't know how dangerous the parents were. Right. And remember too, this is the, she didn't know this child. She wasn't a teacher. She wasn't a friend or a neighbor. This was just a moment in time, and she took the action. I, I, my hat's off to her, really. What a wonderful person. Unbelievable human being. Orlando police say that Flavine Carvalho 
was working on New Year's Day at Mrs. Potato Restaurant when a family of four sat down at a table. Don't you love Mrs. Potato? I love that name. <laughs> Sounds good. It does sound good right now, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. God, I love a baked potato. I uh, mean, that is my, yeah, that's my drug, a baked potato yeah. and sour cream. Uh, the boy's stepdad did not allow the 11-year-old boy to order any food, Okay. And the restaurant manager, she noticed that the child had bruises on his face and arms. Oh, my God. This is the brilliant move. So the manager writes this note. Do you need help? And the way that she did it was she held it up to the boy. So only the boy could read it. But the father and the rest of the family could not see it. And he nodded yes. He needed help. So, runs back, calls the police, shares with the police what's just happened, describes the boy. The boy told police, oh my God, I just, I can't even read it. I can't even say it. Whew. The boy told police that he had ratchet straps tied around his ankles and neck and that he was hung upside down from a door at home and that he had been struck with a wooden broom. And then he was handcuffed and tied to a large moving dolly. He said that he didn't get food on a regular basis because that's how they punished him. That was the punishment, as if everything else that they did wasn't punishment. Could you imagine doing this to a child? No, absolutely not. Oh, sorry, everyone. So, the child's stepfather, Timothy Wilson II, was arrested on one count of third-degree child abuse. Days later, authorities arrested Wilson on another charge, and this time the mother, Kristen Swan, Wilson was arrested on multiple charges of aggravated child abuse and child neglect. The police say that the boy's mother admitted to knowing about the abuse. Swan has been arrested on two counts of child neglect. What that woman in that restaurant did was save this child's life. Absolutely. Without question. Yeah, absolutely. She's an angel. She's mm -hmm. an angel. And like you said, she took risk to herself. Because she didn't know the full situation. She didn't know what this, this father, stepfather might do. The other thing is the child spoke up. Can you imagine how frightened she was? he was? And apparently she had to hold up a sign twice. Like the first time he just didn't respond. Right. Because talk about the fear of, uh, that he has of this, this man that's been, you know, doing these horrible things to him. And then the second time he's like, Okay, he had the courage to say, this is my chance. This is my chance. And whatever that woman was doing gave him the confidence that she would help him, that she would follow through, that this wasn't a trick or anything like that. Whatever she did, she was able to convey enough love and care to him that he, he took the risk on her and said, yeah. And then he spoke to the police. Once again, another, that's why these child abuse cases are so difficult because it's so hard for the kids to speak up against their tormentors. And he did. You know, generally it's um, teachers, people at schools, doctors who are the ones, obviously the mandatory reporters, but also the ones who pick up on this child abuse. But 
because of what's going on because of the pandemic, so many children are not physically in school. Uh, we do not know whether this child may have always originally been homeschooled, never attended school. We we have no idea. But the, right. the current situation of the pandemic and all the ways that different school districts are dealing with this are continuing to isolate children in a way where those people who might have been observers, right, because you would have noticed the bruises on him, where maybe they could have stepped in. But in this situation, there are fewer eyes mm -hmm. on the children. And, of course, there are the additional things that come with the stress of the pandemic that it's been going on for almost a year now. And that adds to the situations where we have more domestic violence than ever. Oh, but man, I am sure that when she stood there and thought, you know, I need to do something, she, she saw definitely that something had happened to this child, but there's no way she could have known the depravity of what had been done to him. There's no way. Okay, the comments are, Michael V., he looks like the uncle from Harry Potter. His actions are comparable. Tony L., that restaurant worker is a hero. We all need to be a voice for the ones who don't have one. Amen. And Cher Bear M., that manager is a hero. Thank God the little boy stood up and answered truthfully, even though he must have been so fearful, right? Absolutely. Most kids won't tell because they're so scared to because of the violence that if they do anything else wrong, they're going to be beaten again. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, as, as painful as that case is, it does have a positive ending. Did I hear a little bell? It's like a little angel. <laughs> no, it's fine. That's a little angel from heaven. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> That's how I'm going to take that one. <laughs> We're going to leave this on a better note than, than I started. Well, that is our program for today. Um, I thank you all for joining us and you especially, Lonnie, for always talking us through things that sometimes don't make sense. Your mm -hmm. insight is invaluable and so is your humanity and your compassion. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Lonnie, where can people follow you? What's your next project? We know you're always on Oxygen with some amazing case. Well, now that you mention it, um, the newest project for Oxygen is airing um, February 11th and 12th. It's a two-night series. It's called Lover's Lane Murders, and it's about the Colonial Parkway murders. M many people are familiar with the name, and the big question that people have wondered is, was it a serial killer that killed these eight people, um, or was it, you know, separate murders. So we look into that. Um, and that's February 11th and 12th. And then the, the case that I told you about last time I was here has aired on Oxygen. It's called The Case Died With Her. And it's about uh, sexual abuse uh, in high school. And then it carried on and then the victim ended up get, uh, dying. And so she wasn't able to proceed with the case. Um, and that's already aired on Oxygen, but it's available on, I believe, the Oxygen app or the o Oxygen website. Fantastic. I, I, I do love the uh, whole Lover's Lane thing. It's like you've made a crime special for Valentine's Day. Only you could pull this one off, Lonnie. No, I didn't. I'm telling you, when they said that they were going to do it during Valentine's, I'm like, really? <laughs> More power to you, Lonnie. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's always such a pleasure having you on. Um, you can find me on all social media at Anna G News, Anna with one N. And as always, you can find our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and of course on YouTube. You can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, 
This is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. 